So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. You regret that? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much. Association football is the most popular outdoor sport in Britain. Thousands play and millions watch the game. Keenest of all are the youngsters, whose heroes are the famous professional footballers, and who dream of the day when they too perhaps may wear the colours of a famous club and hear the roar of the crowd. Welcome to the second episode of Under Flat Caps and Bowler Hats, a man-marking production. My name is Danny Reid. Today we'll be talking you through the life and the unfortunate, tragic death of ex-Everton and England winger George Harrison, otherwise known as the winger who went to war. To play for your country is pretty big nowadays, but back then, you know, you you were good to play for England. And uh, he played uh, against Belgium in Brussels in May 1921. He played in the October against Ireland uh, at Belfast and England drew one all. So he managed to get two England caps. So he, he was up around the Eep area, say, until um, the November um, as I say, there was one report, I think, in the October, it said that uh, there was gas shells as they were going up to the front line and they suffered 80 casualties, all of which had been gassed. You know, suicide post-World War One was extraordinarily high, um, really putting some numbers to what I think was sort of, you know, part of the culture, um, you know, part of literature. Um, but we're the first people, I think, to, um, you know, to put some real solid uh, numbers to that. As is the usual custom, I had a few guests today to help me tell the story, and I will introduce them as we move through. But first of all, I would like to introduce you to George Harrison, not that George Harrison. The George Harrison, who used to play out wide for Everton and for England, for Preston and for Blackpool. And to do that, I'm going to bring in my first guest, which was Kieran Smith. I was introduced to Kieran after contacting the Everton Heritage Society. It was them who first brought George Harrison's story to my attention. And I'm going to tell a little bit more about that later on. But first, here's Kieran. Yeah, of course, mate. Well, Kieran Smith, I live in a place called Swaddlingcote, which is in uh, South Derbyshire. I'm about 15, 20 minute drive from Derby. So, um, uh, George Harrison, I was actually researching um, past footballers from the local area. Uh, I knew that there was some from sort of way back when, you know, the really early days of football. And uh, as I was looking through the, the names, this particular one sort of stood out, George Harrison. I'd never heard of him before. Uh, started to read up a little bit about him and I was quite surprised uh, just how good he was. And obviously then I saw the link with Everton and the fact that he actually won the league. Uh, I believe he's the only person locally who's ever basically won anything pretty much, but certainly the league title, you know. Uh, so it was uh, quite a find. And I was um, I was aware of what Everton had done with past players in terms of marking graves. So a lot of players from that sort of era have got unmarked graves. And I knew that Heritage Society had done that in the past with a few others and um, started to research George a little bit more. 
And cutting a very long story short, uh, he's actually buried in the local cemetery in an unmarked grave. So I contacted Everton at first and within, well, two or three days, the Heritage Society called me back. Uh, and again, cutting a long story short, within 12 months, uh, he uh, got a headstone. They paid for a headstone. We had a, a ceremony and uh, and that was it, really. Superb. So the big question would be then, Kieran, who was George Harrison? George Harrison uh, started out playing for a very local amateur team called uh, in Woodville. I found some very old newspaper reports. There's not many um, of him playing. And it, it's clear from the newspaper reports that he was a bit of a standout player. Uh, he was basically, he was left winger. Uh, he got a fierce shot. You know, he, he was quite skillful, quite powerful. He was only, I think he was about five feet seven. Uh, but, he, you know, he's quite well built. Uh, you know, he, he got something about him that was quite clear. And then in 1910, I think it was, the local club, which is Gresley Rovers, who are still going, they're, they're still up and running, uh, they picked him up and he played uh, 10 or 11 games for Gresley, scored. Uh, on his debut, uh, I was reading a local match report, he just about split the crossbar in half with one of his shots. Again, he, he was clearly he was a standout player. Uh, and very quickly, Leicester Foss signed him. Now, Leicester Foss became Leicester City. Uh, and he, he was there. He played 59 games for Leicester, scored nine goals. And then in 1913, uh, the big one came up for George, and that was Everton. Uh, Everton had got a really, really top side in that era. And uh, within two years of being at Everton, he was a league title winner. So... You know, he, he did quite well for himself there. Uh, but it's quite clear early on, you know, that he was he was going places. Absolutely. Was that quite unusual at the time to move that far away? You know what? It wasn't because uh, sort of doing the Liverpool research as well as others as well, it was quite common. Um, just going back a few years before George Harrison uh, in this area, uh, we've got a guy called Ben Warren. And uh, he actually played for Chelsea and he still lived around here. Uh, back in the uh, sort of 1906 era, uh, Liverpool's goalkeeper was Sam Hardy. Uh, he lived in Chesterfield and never moved. Uh, there was no sort of training like you get nowadays, you know, like players report for training every day. They pretty much they had to look after themselves. Uh, and I would imagine they just travelled by train on a match day. Uh, so it wasn't uncommon. In George's case, I mean, he did leave the area to obviously go to up to Liverpool and he lived on Merseyside. Uh, but very often they didn't. They, they sort of stayed put and, uh, and they travelled, which is amazing, really. But, you know, that's that's what they did. And he spent uh, spent about 10 years all in all in Everton, didn't he? And, and as He say, did. Yeah, it was uh, obviously he signed in 13, 1913. He left in 23. But obviously uh, we got the First World War to interrupt everything sort of in between time. So, uh... This is a perfect opportunity to introduce my second guest, Judith Beastall from the Merseyside branch of the Western Front Association. Here's Judith. My name is Judith Beastall and I'm the Deputy Chairman of the Merseyside branch of the Western Front Association. 
which is basically a First World War organisation um, that we hold monthly meetings. Well, <laughs> normally we hold monthly meetings uh, in Birkenhead with talks on the First World War and we do battlefield tours, but we also do research into soldiers and have a couple of projects on the go of commemorating the fall. And so we just ensure that these men are not forgotten. Uh, at the beginning of the war, there was no conscription. It was all uh, volunteers and there was a, a huge rush to to volunteer. Um, a lot of the men, you know, they were told it'll be over by Christmas. And so they they all wanted to go and do their bit. Uh, the, the actual uh, standing army was relatively small. They went straight over to France and Belgium in August of 1914. Uh, but the volunteers, a, a lot of them going into um, local battalions. This is where the phrase of PALS battalions came up, where a whole workforce was going and volunteering together. Uh, the first of those was was local in it being the Liverpool PALS. Um, a lot of them as well uh, were enlisting because... Uh, you know, times were hard, wages were poor, food was poor. And in actual fact, a lot of the men that enlisted um, after, you know, a few months were, were heavier and far fitter than, than they were before because they were getting three regular meals a day. So um, in a lot of cases, you know, it, it, it was a good thing to be getting a regular income. So the, the volunteers carried on uh, into 1915 um, and then, you know, as, as we were getting news back from the front and it didn't look like the war was coming to an end, uh, they introduced something called the Derby Scheme towards the end of 1915 and that was a scheme where uh, men could volunteer to enlist and could then, if they choose, go on to the Army Reserve to be called up as and when they were required, or they could volunteer to go straight over to the front. Conscription itself wasn't introduced until uh, early in 1916. Now, looking at George's papers, he actually did um, enlist on the 7th of February 1916, so he's possibly been conscripted or he possibly has sort of snuck in as a last minute um, that he's, he's actually enlisted of his own accord. He'd enlisted in Liverpool and then he was put on to, say, what they call the Army Reserve. So basically they went back home until they were required. Now, he put on his service papers that he was um, a dock labourer because obviously footballers in those days were not earning the money that they, they earn today and, and they all had to do other jobs and he was a dock labourer. So he wasn't actually called up um, or mobilised until January of 1917. Was it quite common for for footballers and, and other sports people to have enlisted? I'm just thinking maybe because they were sort of, they would they'd have been in the right age range and they would have been quite fit, presumably. Yeah, they, in, in actual fact, um, uh, very soon after the war started, um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle of Sherlock Holmes fame, he called for footballers to actually enlist. 
and there was a footballers battalion in the Middlesex regiment. Um, but the first actual footballers battalion was raised up in Scotland by uh, Lieutenant Colonel Sir George McRae, and that was the 16th battalion of the Royal Scots. And they were mainly players and supporters. The supporters followed their players uh, into to, uh, the army. And they were players from Heart of Midlothian, Hibernian, Falkirk and Wraith Rovers. So it was very common for the footballers to go, um, you know, to set an example to the supporters. The season was uh, was abandoned from 1915. The league was suspended so there was no more football. I mean, it's not just football, cricket, rugby. Um, you know, there was an awful lot of sportsmen that that uh, went and enlisted. And um, that there is a role of honour of footballers that were killed and also those that were, were given bravery awards. When George went over to, to France... Yeah. Have, have, have you got any idea of as to exactly where he would have saved what he would have seen and that type of thing? Yeah, when he first went over, um, he did go up around the Eep area because um, I, I know a lot of the stuff about him says he fought at Passchendaele, and it is Passchendaele. But technically, it was the third Battle of Eep. Um, Passchendaele was part of that. That had started on the 31st of July, 1917, when he got over there in august it was still going on it went on until november and um, so he would have been involved in that and looking through i had a quick look through the war diary which is the um every battalion kept a war diary on a daily basis of what was going on and where they were and what actions etc they were involved in and a lot although he doesn't seem um that they were actually attacking i mean a lot of people do think that you know they spent the whole time fighting they obviously didn't the the general system of things was that you had three days in the front line three days in support and three days in reserve that changed depending on where you were some areas were quieter than others and you might end up spending a week in the front line but in an area where there was heavy fighting or heavy shelling they didn't usually spend more than about three days in the front line. But then when they were out of the line, they were providing working parties. Um, and even these working parties would be going up to the front to work. And the problem around Ypres, I'm sure a lot of um, your listeners will know that the thing there was the, the mud. I mean, Belgium is is a flat country and in order to stop the Germans, the floodgates had been opened and, and all the drainage that they'd had for all the fields and things had, had just with the shelling had just totally been destroyed. So it was just thick mud. So a lot of the time they were going out trying to lay duck boards, you know, build paths, build roads to get supplies up and down to the front. And I noticed just glancing through the war diary that... Um, this was where on a lot of occasions, as they were working, they were getting shelled, they, they were suffering casualties. And on a couple of occasions, they these were gas shells. Because again, I know from reports I've seen, although there's nothing in his service papers, reports I've seen that he was gassed a couple of times while he was serving. Probably worth mentioning as well, when he when the war was over and he returned, you know, back to back to England, his plane career carried on 
uh, and he played until he was 39. Um, and to do that, you've got to be physically fit. So probably any sort of certainly physical damage from any gas attacks is probably unlikely. Um, so it's not just a case of, of going over the top and, and, and fighting. It's all the work that goes on behind the scenes as well. So he, he was up around the EAP area, say, until um, the November. Um, as I say, there was one report, I think, in the October. It said that uh, there was gas shells as they were going up to the front line and they suffered 80 casualties, all of which had been gassed. So it's possible he's one of those 80 um I mean, I'm not saying that it was he was badly gassed. There's nothing on his papers to say he was sent home because of it. But even so, you don't need to get much into you for him to maybe have suffered effects from it, you know, in later years. Um, after the the battle of Ypres had finished or um, in that area, he was then sent down. Uh, they were round Cambrai. Um, so he was round Ball on Wood. And again, there's a report in the January about them being gassed. And the conditions around there, it was often, again, very, very muddy. Um, there'd been heavy snow and then it would thaw. And so, again, this was another of the uh, the major problems that they had. But he ser certainly served around the Arras area uh, early in 1918. Uh, they did have periods out of the line where they um, would be training. And interestingly, although it's not unusual, but I think it just kept catching the eye, they played an awful lot of football. <laughs> There's, um, when they're out of the line, they were having various football matches. He's not named. They never name who the team is and whether he got into the team because he hadn't been with them very long. But I'm sure once they found out who he was, he, he would have been involved in some of these matches um, and this, his battalion was certainly doing well. They uh, seemed to be winning most of their games. So whether he was getting to play, I don't know. But like they, they came out of the line in April of 1918 for two weeks rest. And it notes in the diary again that they had roughly 30 men a day who were reporting sick when the average was usually only six. Um, and most of them seem to have a fever. And this, again, uh, can be down to the conditions that they're living in. A lot of them used to get what was called trench fever because, you know, your feet constantly being wet. Um, you couldn't get dry. Uh, they also had something called trench foot. You know, so it was pretty horrific. Some of the uh, the illnesses that they could suffer. It's not just a question of shot or wounded in that respect illness was also a big factor not just on the western front but in Salonica there was more men who um were lost through illness such as malaria than there was for actual battle wounds so th these are all things that you have to take into account it's not just the fear of being shot it's keeping taking care of yourself so that you don't you know become ill so we've heard a little bit there about the conditions that George would have been living in when he was fighting over in France. A large portion of this story is about shell shock and PTSD, and we'll get to more of that later. But first, in order to be able to discuss that, we'd like to know a little bit more about 
what George would have seen, what fighting he would have been involved with during World War One. The, the fighting that he was involved in, um, he was certainly, as I say, around Cambrai. He went down to the Somme in 1918, the Canal du Nord, and then the Battle of the Sombre, which was the uh, beginning of November 18. But it's the, the, the thing with the shell shock, often, um, like I'm, I'm giving a talk tomorrow night where I'm looking at three three guys who uh, died as a result of really mental illness brought on by the war. And one of them, it just said that um, it was a shell that had exploded nearby that had made him deaf, but that then he was shaking and trembling all the time. And often it was just, you can imagine, like basically living on your nerves for um, days on end because you don't know you've got the fear of snipers, you know, you, you're not going to see them, you're not going to hear them, you're just going to suddenly, you know, there's a bullet through the head or something, or you could be stood next to somebody who suddenly drops down dead because he's been shot by a sniper. So there's all those kinds of things. Um, obviously, when they're going over the top, uh, you know, there's always the fear of... Um, there's machine gun fire, there's shelling, and, and the orders always were just keep on running. Um, so you've all of that. You're constantly living on your nerves. Um, I didn't come across any areas where he may have been where there was mining, but it, it's possible there was always the fear that, you know, they were digging underground and mines could be blown, you know, under your front line. So you don't know what's going on under your feet when you're in the front line. Um, one of the guys that I'm giving this talk about, his illness was brought on probably by malaria. Um, he came back and sadly he committed suicide in uh, the asylum in Chester uh, after the war had ended. Another chap, he got something called nephritis, which is a kidney disorder. And whether it was that or just the experiences of what he'd seen. But again, he ended up in the mental asylum in Chester and, and died of heart failure. Um, and these men, you know, into the 1920s were still suffering from these illnesses. And although shell shock is written in some of the diaries, you know, so many men have, have gone to hospital with shell shock. I don't think then they recognized it. Um, as we do as PTSD they to them I think at that stage shell shock was really just maybe a sort of temporary thing as a result of the shells going off rather than um, a long-term thing you know they I think they thought at that stage you you go away to hospital for a day or two and come back and you're right as rain um, it, this thing of uh, you know that it was a long-term illness just wasn't recognized for quite a long time following the first world war george returned home and resumed his playing career and there were two elements of this firstly how he adapted back to being a footballer and doing what he loved and b how he adapted to civilian life after all that he'd seen and experienced in france he came back and he yeah he was uh, he was with everton um, and then he 1921 um, he played for England twice which was an, some achievement 
I mean, it, you, to play for your country is pretty big nowadays, but back then, you know, you you were good to play for England. And uh, he played uh, against Belgium in Brussels in May 1921. Uh, he missed a penalty in that game, but uh, uh, but England did win. And then he played in the October against Ireland uh, at Belfast, and England drew one all. So he managed to get two England caps. What is the 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 kinds of mood and the atmosphere around football returning after the war? I think it was it was a bit of a relief, I guess. It, it, it's kind of like what we're getting now. It's it's a bit of normality. Obviously, the difference then there was a crowd, whereas at the minute, obviously, there isn't. But it, it was a, a kind of a return to to normal life. But I mean, obviously, we've got to remember that the country was torn apart. You know, we, we'd lost. God knows how many men during World War One. Uh, England was a, a Britain was a very different place to what it was prior to all of that. Uh, probably football was a bit of a bit of a beacon for, for many people, I guess. But I think it was anyway. I mean, you look sort of going back to to George Harrison's early days back here in Derbyshire. Uh, Gresley at the time was uh, very heavy on coal mining uh, and pottery work. It was really heavy labour. I think football was escapism. It it was escapism for people like George who could play. You know, it gave him a chance to to move away from that. But I think the fans as well, you know, obviously back then predominantly it was male supporters. uh, And, you know, they'd, they'd knock off work and they'd probably go straight to the game in the work clothes and, you know, it, it, I think it was just a release. You know, return to a civilian life. How would that process have been? What were the sort of difficulties and the the sort of years after the war that were for for people like him? I mean, the the first thing is not being able to talk about it. I mean, people today always say that you know any problems, talk about it, talk to other people. But I think you often find with a lot of these old soldiers that they they didn't feel they could talk about it unless it was other old soldiers. Um, they certainly didn't think that they could come home and, and talk to their wives or, or their family about it. I mean, I also co-run a research business. And when we're talking to people and they come and say, oh, I want to know what granddad did in the war because uh, he wouldn't talk about it. And a, a lot of them just just didn't. They just sort of blocked it out. And I think because they thought that people just would not understand the, the horrors that they'd seen because it's not just the fighting. I think for some of them, I would imagine, I don't know, but maybe for some of them when they actually went over the top, you know, you sort of the adrenaline gets going and and you sort of cope with that maybe better than just sitting in the trench all day when you've got time to think about what might happen and what's going on around you and is that next shell, you know, got my name on it sort of thing. Um, and then, of course, they come back. There was the problem that a lot of... Um, women had taken over the jobs so there was problems over that because obviously some of the women wanted to keep the jobs and others you know um the the men were coming back and obviously demanding their their uh, their jobs back again we're clearly soldiers in petty coats and dauntless crusaders for women it's important for the story to note at this point 
that the women's suffragette movement, which was started by Emmeline Pankhurst in 1903, had really started to gain momentum. And whilst it had been suspended when World War I broke out in 1914, in 1918 the representation of the People Act gave the vote to women over the age of 30 who met certain property qualifications. And only 10 years later, women gained electoral equality with men when the representation of the people, Equal Franchise Act 1928, gave all women the vote at age 21. And in the year of 1913, when George first started playing for Everson, Emily Davison, a British suffragette, ran out in front of the King's Horse at the Derby. She was trampled and died four days later in hospital. And this was seen as one of the most significant moments in the suffragette movement. We're fighting for our rights militantly. Never you fear. If I may have a word, Mrs. Um, there was just there was difficulties for an awful lot of men like George to to get back into society and just carry on because uh, I think people thought that they could come back and just you know slot back into their life but in some cases i mean george was away until 1919 so you know he he was away for a couple of years some of these men have been away for four or five years um in a completely alien surroundings i mean you know you often read books and things and sometimes the the things that strike them when they were coming home on leave was how green the countryside was because obviously over there they were just seeing broken trees and mud and and no color and then they come back here and and it's uh you know peaceful surroundings and green fields and they just couldn't cope with it um i, I remember one um biography we did for somebody where a woman said she she didn't know anything at all about her grandfather she just got a photo and we managed to track down because she said he came back from the war and then he just disappeared he couldn't cope with home life anymore and nobody knows where he went he just completely disappeared and she said that one day this man when she was a little girl turned up on the doorstep and her mother turned him away and she thinks that that was her grandfather come back after 20 years you know um but the mother didn't want to know because he just abandoned them when they were children and this often happened and obviously you had men with physical disabilities that couldn't get work and so were um you often see the pictures of them just selling matches on street corners and things because they did feel they'd been let down um you know after all the service that they'd put in and and it was obviously the horrors of what they saw you know you you could be serving with your best friend and you've run an interaction and he's shot down next to you or as you're running there's you know you're just constantly seeing dead bodies everywhere um and after the war you had um obviously these grave registration units that were going out having to find all the bodies and and bury them and you can imagine what state some of them were in they may have been out there for for two years you know and they'd be having to to dig them up and and rebury them in in what we know now as the commonwealth war graves uh, cemeteries um george's unit was actually sent to uh, germany 
Um, so who knows what he may have even seen there and what his feelings may have been, um, you know, to, to having to go and serve in Germany for a couple of months after the war had ended because those people had suffered as well, you know, with food shortages and everything else. And, you know, what if he was seeing women and children there who were starving, even that may well have affected how he felt, even though they'd been the enemy for so many years. But again, you, you think of it more generally, people coming back from the First World War. God only knows what they saw for a start. You know, we can only imagine. Uh, but to be to come back and just kind of be expected to go straight into home life again and, like I say, just to carry on. I mean, we probably wouldn't do it today as much, you know, uh, but things like, you know, counselling and all that sort of thing, it, it was non-existent. Um, and they just they just came home and, and that was it, you know. It was almost like it had never happened, really. Uh, and they were kind of expected just to get on with it. And obviously football was no different, you know. They were, they were on the books of clubs and the league started up again and, and that was it. What was the the reports on him as a player later on in his career compared to maybe earlier on? Obviously, you've got to rely on on the match reports. Um, but one thing I do like is, whenever possible, is reading what the fans of the time had to say. Uh, I think that gives you a, a better understanding of of how great some of these players were. You know, there's some of the great names uh, from that era. Obviously, George fits that bill as well. Uh, and I think that gives you, uh, I, again, it, it does add to the the mystery around it all as well. It's, uh, I mean, all we've got is like, you know, the old cigarette cards and, and what have you. And I don't know, it, it was obviously kind of romanticises it a little bit, but yeah, there was a bit of an air of mystery. And and the fact that he was on things like cigarette cards and that sort of thing, I yeah. presume that was, that would back that up, that not everyone was on there. No, it was, like I said, I mean, you can imagine, uh, Obviously, kids used to get all of these. I know cigarettes and, and the adults, but you can imagine kids picking these cards up and rifling through the packs. And you know, you've, there's one of, of George Harrison, and you you probably, if you weren't living on Merseyside, it, it probably wasn't as easy to see the match reports. Although you know, the further afield newspapers used to report, uh, but they wouldn't be as detailed for clubs further away. But like I say, again, it, it kind of adds to that mystique. And like I say, you can imagine kids keeping these um, in a scrapbook or whatever, you know. 1939, seven years after George had retired and just on the cusp of the Second World War, George Harrison died. The next part of our story will be discussing those tragic events and also their link to the First World War. Tragic, as you say. Um... The doctor, which I think was Dr. Kamak, the local doctor at the time, had been treating him. Uh, two days before he died, uh, he'd been in bed. You know, he was in bed for two days, solid. And he was being treated for uh, influenza and insomnia. On the 12th of February, 1939, um, his son was downstairs, uh, George Harrison was upstairs in the bathroom and there was a bit of commotion upstairs and George, his son, ran upstairs and, and found him dead. He'd taken his own life. That's a bit gruesome, but with a with a razor blade. So not a not a very 
nice ending. Again, you're kind of relying on on newspaper reports. Um, very, very brief. Um, the Scots Guards had, um, I believe, somebody in attendance representing them. Uh, Preston North End had sent a wreath, um, but that was pretty much it. You know, there wasn't much else reported at the time. You know, it's you can only assume what people would have thought at the time, but he would have been, you know, he would have been a bit of a, a celebrity, I would imagine. Obviously, people were well aware of, of who he was and, um, you know, whether other people did go to the funeral, just don't know. It, it's only what was reported uh, locally, really, uh, in the newspaper. Um, so we don't really know, to be honest. Uh, but quite just going back to the events, um, I actually spoke to uh, the landlady, who I think has now passed away, sadly. But um, not many people actually locally knew George Harrison until this all came out. It's quite of a, a forgotten entity, really. Uh, and she was saying when she took over the, the pub, which would have been in the 80s, uh, the door and everything was still in place that they, they had to break down. You know, so the, it was tangible evidence of it happening as well. But like I say, it kind of been forgotten, which is amazing, really, given the status he had as a footballer. Uh, but not many people locally really knew about him. Uh, I wonder I if um, any of that was linked to the fact that it was, you know, that it was suicide. And, and at that yeah. time, probably a bit of a, a taboo, wasn't it? Even more so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've had it in, in in my family going back to that sort of era. Um, my great granddad served in World War One. Uh, I do know that he was badly gassed um, as a, you know, he was actually invalided out of the army. And he actually took his own life in 1923, uh, and that was attributed to the gas attacks. So, you know, that obviously affected him, and it, it, he was kind of erased, which I find amazing, really. And it was only in the last sort of five or six years, sort of researching it, that I found in a local archive, I found the newspaper that uh, mentioned the inquest. And I, that's when, you know, I actually found out the truth, but you know, none of the family knew about it at all, which I find amazing. But I think that's what they did. They kind of, you know, just brushed it aside and, and forgot all about it. And the individual, sadly. You know, with, with George, I think the coroner's, the words were, I did write them down, it was suicide while the balance of his mind was disturbed. That was the official line from the local coroner. I mean, you can, th there's no sort of set, you know, a definite, this is why he did it. We don't know. We never will know. But, you know, you can make assumptions. Uh, I, I think initially I thought, oh, you know, he must have been gassed and obviously that's had an effect on him. But I don't think that's the case uh, because obviously, you know, he had the long career afterwards. This would be the perfect opportunity to bring in my third and final guest, Evan Roberts. Absolutely. Thanks, Dan, for having me on. So hi, everyone. I'm Evan Roberts. And... Um, uh, I'm an assistant professor of population studies and sociology at the University of Minnesota. Um, if you're hearing my accent, you're probably thinking that's probably not a Minnesota accent. Uh, I grew up in New Zealand. Uh, I've mostly lived in the United States um, for the last, uh, most of the last 20 years, though, I have spent a lot of time back in New Zealand and continuing uh, to do a lot of uh, research about uh, New Zealand uh, soldiers from, from the, two, uh, the two world wars. 
Um, my interest in that was sort of got into looking at the military files uh, as a source of uh, sort of systematic um, uh, sources on, on health. Um, uh, anyway, so we had gathered a lot of uh, files of, of New Zealand soldiers from, from the two world wars. Um, mostly we're sort of looking at, you know, how healthy were people when they enlisted uh, and if they survived the war, then sort of following them up afterwards and seeing uh, how long they survived. Um, and one of my research assistants uh, was sort of uh, coding, classifying the causes of death, and he said to me, oh, yeah, there's a lot of suicides in here. And I thought, well, that's, you know, that, that's to be expected. There's, um, there's, there, were, there were a lot, and I think that's sort of well-known in, in, in popular culture um, in New Zealand, but I think also in Australia uh, and Britain, the, the 1920s, there was a lot of uh, returned soldiers with, with shell shock. Um, so I, I dug into it some more, like put some some numbers to it, and um, you know what we do in demography uh, is look at you know how many people die of a particular cause um, over um, the sort of the life years lived. So if somebody so you know if somebody lives for fifty years, um, that's fifty life year fifty life years lived. So if you come back from the war at age twenty five and you live to seventy five, that's fifty life years. Um, and you add that up over all of the people, and then you kind of look at how many people died of a particular cause over 100,000 uh, life years. So I, I want to explain that concept because it's important to sort of understand the, the scale of what we found. Um, and to sort of put it in context, like in, in Britain, New Zealand today, um, you know, about 15 to 20 uh, suicides per 100,000 life years. So you can think of that as 15 to 20 suicides per 100,000 people in the population over, over a year. What we found with these New Zealand soldiers um, over their lifetime, once they got back from the war, uh, was a rate of at least 40, uh, per, so double the sort of the rate in, in young men uh, or in middle-aged men today. Um, so that's very high. Um, it's also much higher than in uh, the sort of uh, recent conflict. So people coming back from uh, Vietnam, the Gulf War, etc., which has received uh, a lot of attention. I say the the rate was at least forty because we have in in um, the records of the New Zealand soldiers a group where uh, it looks like it's probably suicide. Um, but the, it's not sort of definitely recorded uh, as that. But if you read the sort of the files, the um, the coroner's files, the personnel files, uh, it, it's it's pretty clear that mental health was a contributing uh, factor to the death. But it just was not labelled as suicide uh, in um, uh, in in the, in the record. So we in our in our research we sort of separate those out and you know show like okay if you if you're sort of very conservative and you just take the ones that are labelled as suicide it's forty um, per hundred thousand and if it's uh, if you take the broader measure uh, it's about fifty seven so so much much higher uh, than than young men today. Um, and so that uh, shows, you know, for this group of New Zealand soldiers uh, that, you know, suicide post-World War I was extraordinarily high, um, really putting some numbers to what I think was sort of, you know, part of the culture, um, you know, part of literature. Um, but we're the first people, I think, to, um, you know, to put some real solid uh, numbers to that. If you're, so you're, I assume that it's not a, an area that's researched or has been researched in great detail before? 
That's so. So as I, as I mentioned, I think um, uh, you, you may be sort of aware of this, like shell shock. I mean, uh, on Downton Abbey, uh, for people who watch Downton Abbey, uh, you, there's the episode with with Thomas. Um, I think it is. Uh, it's a couple of years since I saw it. Uh, who who um, attempted suicide. Um, and so I think it's, you know, very much part of culture. Um, when we went looking for, like, did people research this at the time, like, try and put some numbers to it, uh, there was one guy in, in Australia um, who worked at the, the major mental hospital, uh, and in the 1930s, he went through all of the, you know, sort of causes of death, all of the records of suicide uh, in New South Wales. Uh, and over a period of five years, he found um, a rate of, of suicide uh, in return soldiers uh, of 39 per 100,000, so actually very similar um, to what we found over, um, over over the lifetime of our soldiers. Um, and so, yeah, no, but, but that's the only research that we found where we sort of saw, um, you know, someone putting some, some numbers to this, trying to quantify it. When we looked at medical journals um, and sort of we can see in, in there that there is a sort of familiarity, a sort of an understanding that, this is an issue. Um, and so in, in one medical journal, for example, there's a report of a, of a conference, and this is, I think, a, a you know, British uh, Medical Association conference, and they just talk, you know, they, the, one of the doctors sort of refers to, well, as, as everybody knows, like lots of soldiers are taking their own lives. So this was known, uh, but not not quantified, and and I think that that's that's important. I, I would not want to claim like we've we're sort of uncovering something that wasn't wasn't known. Uh, we're you know putting some numbers as best we can um, to something that I think was sort of un understood, uh, but not really um, discussed and addressed as much um, as you know as as it could have been. But I would presume that there's a reason why it hadn't been quantified before would you suggest that might be because of sort of more old-fashioned attitudes towards mental health uh i'm not well a little bit so i would say that um you know the the military uh, and i'm talking about so you know the us australia britain and we've sort of tried to read uh, as much as we can about what people sort of understood about this um they, they were very into collecting, um, you know, statistics and numbers. I mean, the military is an amazing bureaucracy. Um, they were into collecting statistics on a lot of a lot of things. Um, I would say that, and, and I would, I said like it was sort of known but not addressed. Um, people were pretty aware talking about New Zealand, but but again, New Zealand was not unique. Australia, the US, Canada. Um, there were a lot of efforts, and I think the same is true in Britain, to get, um, to sort of rehabilitate soldiers. And one of the uh, sort of very common ideas was, uh, which you see particularly, um, you know, outside Britain, so Canada, Australia, New Zealand, United States, was resettling soldiers on the land. Uh, and this was not the only way they sort of dealt with this, uh, with the sort of issue of soldiers with shell shock. But they really did believe that if you got uh, men who were sort of, um, you know, suffering from shell shock, neurasthenia was another diagnosis, um, where if you got them sort of into a quiet place, farming, um, that that would sort of help, would help their adjustment back to society. 
Um, and you can really see the connections to some of the things that people, you know, had experienced and suffered was like this idea of getting people out of the city, uh, which was loud and noisy, um, and getting them into sort of a quieter environment. And, and what we've seen in, in our research uh, a little bit is that uh, the sort of the flip side of getting into the country, um, you know, it's quiet, but it's also pretty socially isolated. Um, and we've we've seen a few stories and um, narratives in, in our files of men who ended up on sort of pretty um, marginal farmland, really struggling to 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 make a go of that farmland, and, and that you know probably contributed to some of the troubles uh, they had later. And of course, they were also pretty pretty isolated. Um, the other thing, and again, this was sort of, you know, common in Britain as well, was helping men into, um, into different, uh, uh, different jobs. So if you had lost, um, you know, lost a limb, um, you know, one of the stories that uh, sort of really sticks with me uh, is this um, story of three brothers uh, in New Zealand, all of whom went to, to war. They enlisted sort of like at the same time. They had sequential serial numbers. Uh, one of them was injured, lost a leg. Um, he had been sort of working in, in farming before the war. Uh, and he was re he rehabilitated. He learned how to type, learned accountancy. Um, and, you know, you can see in his files, like, they think they've done a great job with this. Um, like, they've got him a good job as actually the secretary of a racing club. Um, and then... 15 uh, years after the war, after the injury, so 1932, so it's the depression, the racing industry, I think is, um, you know, having hard times, you know, people were not betting uh, as much during during the Great Depression. Uh, he takes his own life, um, shoots himself on the, on the race, the race course. Uh, and so really illustrating, and this was one thing, you know, one that's sort of uh, a thing that we've seen, is that a lot of the suicides that we see in New Zealand soldiers uh, happen in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, so you mentioned that uh, I think that George Harrison uh, took his life in 1939, uh, and that is very consistent with what we see uh, in, in New Zealand, that it's the 1920s and um, that are the sort of the, the peak um, of, this, of these uh, suicides. Uh, and then after World War II, we, you know, the men are, by, by post-World War II, of course, a lot of these men are sort of into their 50s, um, and we don't see any, uh, maybe one out of like hundreds of soldiers, hundreds, thousands of soldiers that we've, we've looked at um, then. So it really, it affects men for a long time, but it does, you know, if they could survive uh, till, till, the, till World War II, and that's, not, that's just a coincidence, but it really is in sort of 20 years after the war that you see, see this happening. Uh, and when you, when you say shell shock, I presume that's like a term that would be, what would be PTSD nowadays? Yes, that that's right. And so that was the term they were they were using at the time. They didn't really um, the sort of the nomenclature, the the language um, was was not always very specific. Um, shell shock, um, however, tended to be applied to to you know to men who literally uh, had been sort of you know very close to. Um, uh, uh, <clears throat> 
you know, sort of like explosions and uh, they could connect it very definitely to the to the front lines, to a specific event. Um, there was another diagnosis which was pretty common in the New Zealand soldiers' files was this uh, neurasthenia. Uh, and that was a sort of, in a way, they could not determine the sort of the source uh, of the... Um, uh, of the sort of the mental health issues, um, they would sort of identify the men as, you know, not having a lot of motivation. Um, you know, basically they were showing symptoms of depression um, and, and the like. Uh, but it was often, yeah, they could not sort of put their finger on it or the, the man could not identify like, well, there was this event which sort of precipitated um, when I started to feel bad. Whereas with shell shock, it, it more often was connected to a particular event um, that, that occurred. Um, whether that was um, sort of, you know, being bombed, um, seeing something happen, you know, to a, to a peer, to someone in your, in your, in your unit. Um, yeah, so, so that's the sort of, those are the, those are the two most common sort of categories of, of uh, mental illness that, that we see um, in the New Zealand files, but there, it's hard, you know, the sort of, you know, we can only see the written files and it's just got this annotation. Uh, it's hard to know always, you know, what's, what's exactly going on. And in terms of comparisons with with other wars, you said that obviously the the, the it seems there seems to be a lot higher rates in soldiers from, from World War One than from other yep. subsequent wars. Do you think there's any specific reason for that? I think that the uh, the and again, sort of my my knowledge is a little better with the sort of New Zealand Australia. Um, is that they were aware of what was happening. I think also the United States. I assume the same is, is true in Britain. I mean, the New Zealand medical uh, community, um, I mean, I'll put it this way, the the um, the organisation of doctors in New Zealand was literally the British Medical Association New Zealand branch. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were sort of very influenced by reading the British medical journals. But uh, after World War II, sort of coming to the end of World War II, I mean, there's articles in the New Zealand Medical Journal. Um, there's really only the one sort of main medical journal in the country. And it, 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 there's a sort of several page article which talks about in 1944, um, as they can sort of see the war is um, coming, you know, hopefully to an end pretty soon. Like, well, there's going to be these men coming back from back from the war, and here, you know, at four four people in general practice, uh, the organisation of uh, GPs and everything is pretty similar in New Zealand and Australia to, to Britain. You know, your first port of call is you know your local GP. Um, to get to get out healthcare, and then you'd get a referral to a to a psychiatrist. So there's a sort of primary care sets and then referral model. Um, yeah, so they have uh, articles um, and just guidance about what to do in in general practice. Um, the I have not been able to get back to New Zealand this uh, summer because of the uh, coronavirus uh, situation. Um, but just sort of looking through what's available in the, in the archives, and you can tell a lot from um, the um, the titles of the files. There, there appears to be a lot of World War II sort of psychiatric, uh, psychological uh, material sort of in the army files. And I... I'm looking forward, hopefully next year, to getting into that and really seeing like what they were what they were doing. But as I say, the, the medical journal article is very suggestive uh, that there's a great, much greater level of awareness 
Um, I think the other thing with World War II, um, and I think with um, you know subsequent wars, uh, is that there really is a way, and, and I've got to choose my words carefully here. There really is a way in which World War One is sort of is is worse for for people their experience, uh, and, and I'll lay that out in a couple of ways. One is that. Um, that the death rate for soldiers was much higher. So for New Zealand, um, and New Zealand uh, and Australia had pretty high death rates in, in World War World War One. Uh, the death rate for soldiers in, in World War Two was about one sixth of what it was in World War One, um, and the injury rate was also subs uh, quite a lot lower. So you, you know your chances as a as a soldier of seeing one of your mates killed. Uh, of seeing one of your mates injured, of being injured yourself and surviving, um, your chances of having those bad events happen to you uh, was much lower. Uh, another thing uh, is just a sort of exposure to the front lines, and I think this is something that they that they learned. Um, New Zealand, Australia, obviously, it's a long way from um, you know the South Pacific to to Europe, and you know in World War One, like they got them there, and if you were healthy. Uh, you had a very long tour of duty and, you know, you might go back to, you know, behind a few 20 miles back from the front lines in, in France and, you know, given the technology of the time, that was fairly um, fairly safe and you could go and, you know, frequent prostitutes and drink French wine and, you know, get a little bit of a break. Uh, in World War, but it was pretty short term, um, you know, a couple of days away and then you'd rotate back through the front lines. So you didn't have long breaks. World War II, um, the sort of the the extra long tours of duty, uh, you know, sort of the three years without a break, uh, which is pretty common for the New Zealand and Australian uh, men in World War One, that doesn't happen as much. I think they're much more conscious of giving people longer periods uh, away from the front lines in, in World War Two, um, And so the sort of buildup of stress um, just isn't there. Um, yeah, and I think uh, um, the sort of the, the trench, trench warfare, um, which was not as much of a factor um, in World War II as compared to World War I, um, I think had some sort of psychological aspects and sort of, um, you know, concert, you know, very concentrated stress that extended over a long period of time. Uh, just the nature of the battle, um, I think, put soldiers... Uh, in sort of prolonged stress in World War One for much for much longer. Um, so as I say, I wanted to choose my words carefully. Um, men who serve in, in war, um, it's it's very stressful. Any any war, uh, I think adding up a lot of the things about World War One, um, there were ways in which it was sort of extra extra stressful um, for 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 some soldiers. It, it I don't even know if you could be records for this, but. George George's suicide was particularly violent in its in its in its kind of how mm -hmm. it took place. Yep. Were there were there m much in the way of records of methods of suicide? Are there common themes? Are they often quite violent, or is it one of those things that's difficult to quantify? Uh, that is uh, sadly uh, one of the things which is sort of really well quantified um, and and very well studied uh, in. Um, 
you know, in, in the study of suicide. Uh, people use the sort of the, the methods that, um, you know, that are, are available. I mentioned the, they, that a lot of these men went into farming uh, or, or a good uh, number of men were sort of went back to farming or, or took the advantage of a soldier settlement. Um, and so in rural areas, um, you know, uh, shooting yourself with a rifle uh, is a pretty common method. Um, Gas, um, you know, this is uh, also the case in Britain um, in the 1920s and, and 30s. Um, and then, um, you know, the sort of, um, as I said, people take available of what methods are, are, are around and accessible. Um, you know, Britain, um, you know, had a sort of epidemic of sort of gas suicides um, and the gas companies, uh, if, to get the exact details, but in the 1950s, they uh, made some sort of modifications to sort of the to gas service, um, and and the sort of the rate of gas suicides in, in Britain went went down. Um, yeah, the the thing that really stands out, however, with New Zealand um, is is drowning. Um, you know, accessible, um, also easy to disguise. I mentioned that um, you know we sort of calculate this rate of 40, uh, and then there's a whole group which are you know, they look like they're suicides. Um, the, there were a lot of, and a lot of these were drownings, and the coroner who does the sort of investigation of any unexplained death uh, would record these as uh, drowned. Uh, there wasn't evidence to show why the, why the deceased entered the water. But if you go and read the file where they interview the family member, um, it's often very clear, like the the, the, per, the person had mental health uh, uh, issues um, and was was suffering, and that this was often not a surprise. Um, but the, the essentially, for a lot of these drownings in New Zealand, where it's like drowned without evidence as to how the deceased entered the water, um, it's like there's no note. Uh, that's left to say like, yeah, I'm taking my own life and I'm walking into the sea or jumping off a pier uh, with, with rocks in my pocket. Um, yeah, so the, the drowning one is the one that's really particular to New Zealand. Um, again, like it's a sort of, um, you know, like as I mentioned with the gas in Britain, which, you know, post-1950s and the, the gas companies, you know, sort of dealt, dealt with us. From the start of when you started doing your research into this and writing your paper and that sort of thing, did your perspective of this topic change much over that process? Yeah, it's sort of it's sort of hard to say. I mean, um, I think that I think what what I have realised, um, you know, reflecting on what I sort of started describing, is the um, uh, the, the sort of the much higher rates in World War One, and, and now we're sort of investigating for at least the New Zealand's forces uh, what looks like a big drop to the post World War Two um, uh, post World War Two guys, and you see um, you see in the United States where with uh, you know unfortunately sort of you know World War Two Korea Vietnam um, the Gulf First Gulf War Second Gulf War like a lot of conflicts um, is that um, you know, things when 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 the military, when other healthcare um, uh, organisations in society, um, you know, so NHS in Britain, when people are aware of this issue, uh, rates go down. When there are concentrated efforts to address mental health um, and to make it acceptable to talk about 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 your feelings um, and for you know 
suggest like here are resources, here are services that are are available. Uh, it's not going to eliminate suicide, um, but yeah, the rates the rates are markedly different uh, between conflicts, and I you know I see a sort of a broad pattern um, that when there's been a an effort to address it. Um, it's it's better, um, and so I yeah I think I mean it's a very sad topic. I sort of work on this in, in chunks uh, of time because it takes a bit of mental energy, um, to, you know, to sort of really get into it. And then even when one's doing that, it's you know, for my own sort of sanity, I sort of focus on like okay, what is the kind of like technical problem that I you know what are the files that are you know breaking making it you know just got to sort of like a you know like a psychiatrist or psychologist. You've got to have a bit of a professional distance from the material, and that's what I try to do when I'm working on uh, working on this. Because when you think about the stories, it is um, it is very affecting. Um, but yeah, I would I want to end on a sort of a, a positive note: is that we can do something about this. We can help a lot of people. Um, and yeah, what I mentioned, you know, t more than twice the rates in World War One compared to World War Two. Um, you know, this that's that's huge. Um, that's that's thousands of people if you look at the number of soldiers who serve uh, in various various conflicts. Um, so yeah, um, do the best we can. Talk to people, support them, um, and you know it'll it'll make a difference. I mean, the the most famous one. I mean, everybody knows about Harry Patch. He didn't start talking about his experiences, you know, until he was nearly a hundred. I was 18, 18 and a half, and I was called up. I saw two battlefields, one at Passchendaele and one at uh, Pilkem. I should never forget it as long as I live. The officer was going down the trench. Anybody who didn't go in was shot on sight for cowardice, we went over and we crawled. If you stood up, you were dead. Some of them, you know, could talk for hours and, and deal with it, but others, um, you know, they, they were quite old before they could say anything. And I know of one who he'd been interviewed and then when they went back to, to do a second interview with him, he said, oh, after you left, he said there was... That night there was a thunderstorm and I found myself under the bed wrapped up in the bedclothes because I thought I was back in the trenches. And this was when he's, you know, into his 80s. So you're talking 50, 60 years after the war that there can be things that just set it off that wouldn't mean anything to you or I, but it just brings back that memory of what it must have been like for them. Just, just the noise sometimes was enough um for some of them it didn't have to be the actual fighting or the sights it was just that noise of you know a, an artillery bombardment um because if you think okay george wasn't on the somme but um on the first day of the somme when they reckon they could actually hear the guns in london so if you can hear it that far away imagine what it must have been like to actually be there and to hear that noise constantly going on the final part of our story takes us all the way back to the beginning why did we choose george harrison where did we come across him and that takes us back to kieran and back to the everton heritage society and the way that they did to preserve george's memory
Well, as I say, I, I sort of latched onto his name doing research into local footballers. And uh, again, the local archive, I just got a hunch that obviously he died in Gresley, which I, I wasn't aware of. So he must have been buried in Gresley. So I went to the local archive and they've got the burial registers uh, and like a little map of the cemetery. Uh, and there he was. Uh, the name was there. The grave was there. Uh, took a wander up. It took a little bit of finding, but um, as I say, we, we we found it, and it was it was unmarked. There was nothing there. Um, and I got in touch with with Everton, who passed me on to the Heritage Society. Uh, managed to find, as you say, a couple of relatives, and then uh, two guys from the Heritage Society uh, travelled up. I think it was on a Sunday. Um, we met at Gresley Rovers ground where George would have played. Uh, they got a bit of information on George, you know, photographs and that kind of thing. And we, and we discussed what we were going to do. And then a few months later, um, an entourage came down from Merseyside. Um, the society came down. Uh, they did a brilliant ceremony, uh, which is on the Heritage Society's website. They've included a couple of video clips on there um it was a really you know really nice occasion uh, really respectful uh the headstone is brilliant um it's got a little there's a photograph of george taken from one of the cigarette cards that's sort of at the top of the headstone and engraved in the headstone is a copy of the uh, title winners medal from 1915 um, and I know that people have purposely come into the town to visit it. I do know that. And uh, on the back of that, uh, the local council uh, and again the, the local archive, they've done a similar to the you know the blue plaque mm. scheme in London. Uh, they've done a, a green plaque scheme and a trail. So there's various people of, of note. And uh, George Harrison's now got one on the Rising Sun. Which I think is, yeah, is pretty good, and that's yeah. It's, so he is uh, remembered now locally, which I, I think is important. Thank you for listening to Under Flat Caps and Bowler Hats. Our next episode on Man Marking will be out on Monday, which will be the final episode of Series Three. We'll be speaking to Twitter funny man Johnny Sharples. You can find us on Twitter at marking underscore man, and don't forget to use the hashtag Where's the Talking Lads. Barking of the Grave, is that something that the Heritage Society do? Is that like a regular thing for them? Yeah, they've done a few. Um, uh, You know, I I think when I first, going back, I think that was 2015, I think they've done two or three at that point. uh, And they've done, you know, a few since then as well. Uh, It's something that the Society are really, really big on you know obviously it's a mark of respect for these guys who helped not only form Everton's history but it's the history of football you know it's the game we all go and watch today um, and it had to start somewhere and it's these players that kind of cemented that so it's it's a mark of respect kind of for the families as well it's that the club still remember that player they're not forgotten and uh, I just think it's uh, you know, it's a really nice thing to do. Yeah, I agree. And from your perspective, then, Kieran, what was your motivation for flagging it and getting in touch with with Everton? Then, 
I think, again, I, I just found this guy fascinating that he just kind of vanished. I thought, well, you know, this is a guy <clears throat> from the local area, the only one that I'm aware of who's actually won a major honour in football. And he's just lying there in an unmarked grave. And that kind of doesn't seem, doesn't seem right, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And obviously knowing that that was with Everton and knowing that the Heritage Society did what they did, um, I thought, you know, we've got to do something about this. What I didn't expect was how quick it happened. I mean, Everton were on it straight away. You know, there was no messing about. Um, it, it was literally within days they were going to do it. It was just a case of putting things together and... Uh, it was amazing how quickly it happened but I just think locally um, it was too important not to do this really 